Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. Kilkenny and Limerick have met nine times in the senior All-Ireland hurling final. Kilkenny edged the encounters with five titles to Limerick's four. The first of those encounters was back in 1897 when Limerick won 3-4 to Kilkenny's 2-4. The last All-Ireland final between the two sides was in 2007 and this time Kilkenny were the victors on a scoreline of 2-19 to Limerick's 1-15. I was at that game. I was also at the All-Ireland final between Kilkenny and Limerick in 1974 which Kilkenny won 3-19 to Limerick's 1-13, much to the delight of Kilkenny supporters, as Limerick had beaten us soundly the previous year. And it's that 1973 final we lost I remember most vividly. And I remember it vividly for two reasons. Firstly, Kilkenny was without Eddie Kerr, our talisman, our marksman, whose absence, I have no doubt, was a major factor in Kilkenny losing the game, with a final score of 114 to Limerick's 121. Secondly, I remember the game because of the torrential rain that fell. I was in the canal end with my best friend Bobby. We were decked out in the black and amber colours of Kilkenny, in cheap crepe paper hats that were not remotely waterproof, as we soon discovered. As the Kilkenny backs leaked scores, our cheap paper hats leaked streams of black and amber rainwater down our faces. Not quite black and amber tears, but not far off. Later, down and out, we guzzled curried chips in a nearby café, and were so upset that we unwittingly walked out without paying. The waitress came running after us, and we tried to explain that we were not petty criminals, but depressed Kilkenny supporters. She was not convinced. But yes, as already mentioned, we were back in Croke Park the following year, 1974, to see Kilkenny this time with our talisman and marksman Eddie Kerr back in action wreak vengeance on Limerick, running out winners by 12 points. The most interesting All-Ireland hurling encounter between Kilkenny and Limerick, however, has to be that of the 1911 final, which the records accredit to Kilkenny. The match, however, never took place. Kilkenny beat Dublin in the Leinster final, while Limerick accounted for Tipperary in the Munster final. The match was fixed for the Cork Athletic Grounds. However, heavy rain the previous few days left the pitch in such a soggy condition that it was impossible to play the game. Limerick, however, thought otherwise. They had defeated Tipperary in the Munster final under similar conditions on the same pitch a few weeks previously and were hell-bent on playing the game. In fact, the Limerick players togged out and had a warm-up on the pitch, much to the delight of their supporters. But the referee, 
Tom Kenny from Galway, in consultation with some central council officials that cleared the pitch unplayable and the game was rescheduled for Thurlis. Limerick were having none of it and insisted that the game be played in Cork. That standoff resulted in Kilkenny being awarded the All-Ireland and the Limerick County Board being suspended. To make up for the loss of revenue, the Central Council organised a game between Kilkenny and Tipperary in Dungarvan County Waterford for a special set of medals. Kilkenny went on to win that game on a scoreline of 3-3 to tips 2-1. Coincidentally, prior to the 1911 final that never happened, one John F. Drennan of Conway Hall in Kilkenny presented the Kilkenny County Board with a set of black and amber jerseys to be worn by the Kilkenny team. From then on, the famous black and amber became the colours worn by Kilkenny hurlers. As for those nine All-Ireland final encounters between Kilkenny and Limerick, I guess it's more accurate to say that each team has won four apiece, the famous 1911 final having been not won by, but awarded to Kilkenny. Rain or no rain, today's final will, barring a draw, decide who will have edged ahead in the winning stakes. Limerick or Kilkenny. Almost 40 years since I first discovered her, I'm about to have the chance to perform as Kate Bush in public, to dance like her and maybe even experience a tiny sense of what it's like to be her. This secret longing has been up there with date Mr Darcy and master parallel parking. No luck with either of those so far. Kate Bush is enjoying a global resurgence at the moment. Her single Running Up That Hill recently featured on Stranger Things on Netflix and finally reached number one in the UK singles chart 37 years after it was first released in 1985. Wuthering Heights was the song that introduced me to Kate Bush. She wrote it about the novel by Emily Bronte, which I studied in school. I hadn't expected to enjoy the book. I didn't like the look of that sulphurous guy on the book cover. Roughly shirt and cape indeed. The notions. Reluctantly, I read the first line. I have just returned from a visit to my landlord, the solitary neighbour that I shall be troubled with. I read on and was surprised to find myself swiftly hooked by the story of intense star-crossed love. Then again, I was a teenager, making cow eyes at a six-foot-four-inch Heathcliff of my own across a crowded classroom. I craved an all-consuming passion like Heathcliff's and Cathy's. Imagine your fella being so demented by grief that he'd dig up your grave or ask your ghost to haunt him. That was so romantic. My obsession with Wuthering Heights continued. I discovered Kate Bush. 
She wrote the song Wuthering Heights within a few hours on the 5th of March 1977 when she was a teenager. In the misty gothic landscape of the music video, Kate Bush is mesmerising in her floaty red dress, fragile and feminine yet strong and self-possessed, courageous enough to be quirky and expressive. She is haunting and hypnotising. I recorded the song from the top 30 on my cassette player and played it on a loop until I had it word perfect. I affected a mystical look and shrieked into my hairbrush in front of the bedroom mirror. Alan Wiley, windy moors we drool and fall in green. You had a temper like my jealousy, too hard to greedy. I thought I sounded amazing. One evening after school on a whim, I visited the local hairdresser. You know Kate Bush? Could you do my hair like that? I asked. The hairdresser smiled, plugged in her crimper and set to work. I didn't recognise myself. My big hair was bewitching. It was worth missing the school bus and walking the heel-blistering four miles home. My mother, who was pacing the road outside our house, was not impressed with me or my frizz. Get into the bathroom and wash that out now, she ordered. I did, but not before striking a few more poses in front of the mirror and committing my tantalising Kate Bush look to memory. Well, this month, the crimpers are coming out again. An event called the Most Wuthering Heights Day Ever is held at locations around the world every July to recreate the music video for the single of the same name. It was inspired by the ultimate Kate Bush experience in Brighton in 2013. Created by the performance collective Shambush, the event attempted to set an unofficial world record with the most people dressed as Kate Bush in one place. This year it's happening in Dublin in Fairview Park on the last Saturday in July. I find a floaty red dress in a charity shop that's perfect for twirling. On YouTube, I discover the exotically named Cat Complex. She's an Australian Kate Bush lookalike who has helpfully choreographed a Wuthering Heights dance routine. I'm back in my bedroom, rehearsing dance moves in front of the mirror. My knees creak as I struggle to rise from a crouching position as elegantly as I can. As a 15-year-old, I dance like a whirling dervish. As a 50-something woman, I am self-conscious about swivelling, scooping and swaying. Apparently, Kate Bush never performed Wuthering Heights the same way twice. If she can improvise, then so can I. On Saturday the 30th of July, Kate Bush's birthday, I'll apply red lip gloss and the trademark black eyeliner with a heavy hand. In the name of art, I'll even wear gold hoop earrings. I'll put on my red dress and head to Fairview Park at lunchtime to meet the other Kate Bushes. I'll be in no hurry to wash out my big hair afterwards. I'll enjoy every moment as I finally get to channel my inner Kate Bush. Thank you.
Between 1941 and 2017, Limerick won a single All-Ireland hurling title. Yes, one title in 77 years. Today, they're chasing a fourth title in just five years. When you absorb that contrast in fortunes, you get some idea of the dizzy heights the county is now scaling. These are the best of times we could have ever imagined. We are blessed with the emergence of a once-in-several-generations hurling team, acclaimed by all the pundits as having brought our ancient game to new levels of skill, tactical nous and intensity. This afternoon in Croke Park, they face the ultimate test, coming up against the aristocrats of the game, Kilkenny. That's the team with most All-Ireland titles, 36, and the team that completed a four in a row as recently as 2009. They're also the only team to beat Limerick in the Championship since our own glorious run of success began in 2018. That was in the semi-final of 2019, and perhaps most worryingly of all, the maestro who fashioned all that success for the men by the Noor over the past two decades, Brian Cody, will again be their Commander-in-Chief this afternoon. Last year, Limerick sprinted to All-Ireland success, having to win just four games, two in Munster, followed by an All-Ireland semi-final, and then victory over Cork in the final. That was a game they graced with one of the finest displays of modern times, embellished with the highest score by any team in an All-Ireland final, a total of three goals and 32 points, no less. By contrast, this year has been a gruelling marathon campaign. Today will be our seventh championship game. There is general agreement that several other counties are now rapidly catching up with Limerick's sublime levels of skill, athleticism and tenacity. They were put to the pin of their collar to get out of Munster. The provincial final against Clare has been universally acclaimed as one of the great games of modern times. Fuelled by a neighbourly but tribal rivalry and battling torrential rain, Clare played with demonic zeal. It was a bone cruncher from start to finish, with both teams evincing skills that made a mockery of the conditions. The match was levelled 15 times, and it took extra time for Limerick to finally shake off the banner. And the semi-final against Galway was another heart-stopping struggle. Once again, our heroes found themselves embroiled in a do-or-die battle. They had beaten the tribesmen in the final of 2018, and in the 2020 semi-final, but this was a much more even, intense affair. The teams were levelled ten times and were still tied with just four minutes to go. But once again Limerick showed why they are now serial champions as they ground out a three points win. Shakespeare's line, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown, certainly comes to mind. And all this knife-edge drama may not be good for the heart, but Limerick people wouldn't want it any other way. You could say too, we've never had it so good. Throw in last week's incredible golf event in Adair Manor, organised by J.P. McManus, who also sponsors the hurling team, where locals were rubbing shoulders with the top golfers in the world, including the legendary Tiger Woods, and talk of matters Limerick was on everyone's lips. We're not used to the spotlight, because we're used to being overlooked. Limerick is not considered cool. So how cool then was it to see Hollywood great Bill Murray and former world number one golfer Adam Scott from Australia rocking up for the semi-final in Croke Park clad in their green Limerick hurling jerseys. 
Today I believe we have the dubious advantage of knowing how Kilkenny will attempt to derail us. When they won in 2019, the Cats began in a frenzy of physicality, hooking and blocking. After 19 minutes, they led by nine points. Limerick did mount a heroic fight back thereafter, but ultimately lost the game by a single point. You wouldn't need to be a clairvoyant either to predict that Limerick will face another blitzkrieg this afternoon. In fact, the same playbook was deployed by Cody and his team when they trounced a fancied Clare two weeks ago in their semi-final. And while Limerick are rated favourites by many respected hurling pundits, there's not the slightest chance our players and mentors will underestimate the enormity of the battle this afternoon. I'm confident our brains trust, led by John Kiley and Paul Kinnerk, along with their statisticians, strength and conditioning coaches and psychological personnel, will devise a plan to withstand today's ferocious challenge. There's a well-known bronze statue on Limerick's O'Connell Street featuring a hurler and a rugby player. Called Rock and Puck, it was erected in 1992 to celebrate our sporting obsessions. If Limerick do triumph this afternoon and enter the annals of hurling immortality, expect not a statue, but a giant monument to honour our heroes, topped off with images of Kylie, Kinnerk and McManus. If the name Elizabeth Aldworth is familiar to you, it's possible that you have a fair knowledge of the Grand Order of Freemasonry, and very particularly of the Irish Lodges. Because Elizabeth Aldworth, born Elizabeth St. Ledger in Donorail, County Cork, in 1693, is the first woman to have been inducted as a full member of the Order. There are women's lodges in America, some of them having fraternal acquaintance with men's lodges, and as far back as the 1740s, some women in France were admitted to the ranks, while the Empress Josephine was known to have headed a lodge in Strasbourg in 1805. But with her husband upending the old order in every aspect of life, that wasn't particularly surprising. But to find a woman who is accepted worldwide as a full initiate under all rights, apparently, you have to go back further in time, but not very far geographically, just to Donorail in County Cork. Elizabeth Aldworth's story is so extraordinary that it could be apocryphal, except a visit to the Masonic Hall at Tucky Street in Cork City will provide all the proof anyone could need. The hall is located in a modest Georgian townhouse that opens direct onto the street, and time was when outsiders might not have been welcome within its portals, but times change. And a visit to the small museum of Masonic artefacts there yields Elizabeth's own regalia, a jewel, a brooch in the shape of a trowel, to be worn on the shoulder, and a beautifully embroidered and fringed silk apron. Indeed, in any of the published histories of Freemasonry, there can be found a portrait of Elizabeth proudly wearing both. The story goes that her father, having been recently created Viscount Donorail, 
was the head of his own lodge, comprised of neighbours, friends and a couple of upper servants. His butler held office as Tyler, whose duty was to guard the entrance to the lodge meetings at Sword Point, although that was merely ceremonial by the dawn of the 18th century. But like much of the ritual attached to the Order of Freemasonry, it had its roots in the days when apprentices to trades could pay with their lives if caught congregating in support of each other against their all-powerful masters. It also accounted for the various oaths which initiates take to this day, and which involve promises of ghoulish retribution if they reveal any of the secrets of the Order. Membership is open to all men of faith, that is, you have to believe in the Christian God, and of course, if you're a woman, you've had it at least in this part of the world where the membership of Britain and Ireland is concerned. But on a dark evening in 1712, the 19-year-old Elizabeth St Ledger was curled up in her father's library at Donorail Court. The worst she could have been up to was reading a novel, a very racy occupation for a young lady in her day, but there's no record of that. The newly minted Lord Donorail had commissioned works to extend the adjoining room, which was the lodge meeting room, and an archway had been broken through to the library, except the builders had gone off duty, pushing the bricks temporarily back in place. Light from the meeting room crept through the cracks, and Elizabeth decided to satisfy her curiosity as to what was happening. She dislodged a few bricks and settled down to eavesdrop. A history of Freemasonry published more than a century later proclaims sonorously that it was not until she realised the solemnity of the responsibilities being undertaken by the candidate that she realised the terrible consequences of her actions. A brother was being initiated in the second degree and apparently the ritual is, to put it mildly, hair-raising. Terrified, and realising she was in serious trouble if she was caught, Elizabeth tried to tiptoe through the dimly lit lodge meeting room, only to be grabbed outside the door by the sword-wielding Tyler. He may have been the faithful butler whom she saw daily, but in the circumstances she shrieked loudly and promptly fainted. Revived and marched to face her papa, he and the brethren conferred as to what should be done with her. Obviously, the supposed gruesome fate of anyone who spied on the Order's ritual was not in order. But there were also solemn oaths involved. And to get round it all with the honour of Freemasonry unbesmirched, the 19-year-old daughter of the St Ledger family was initiated into the Brotherhood. A year later, she married a neighbour, Richard Oldworth, who also had been present at the lodge meeting which accepted her into membership. And throughout a long life, she died at the age of 80, Elizabeth was renowned for her charitable works. As history records, her purse and influence were always at the command of any brother in distress. Not merely that, but whenever the members of the lodge paraded in public, the Honourable Mrs Aldworth was seen at the forefront, proudly sporting her regalia. The St Ledger family continued to live at Donorail Court until the title died out in 1956, but the seventh Viscount's widow lived there until 1969, when she sold it to the Land Commission. And in 1993, it was handed over to the Irish government by the Irish Georgian Society. Elizabeth Aldworth, nay St Ledger, who made history and lived a long and charitable life, 
is commemorated at her burial place, St Finbar's Cathedral, now of course rebuilt, but where a memorial plaque to her can be found close to the pulpit. Shanach Nerevon Farahor Kinta, Govakashi e, Murkashi egen vinog, ilorna hiha, Anel Kolata eg elu uhi. Fui hollis shave na galli, Agus garad don lampishroida, a moher moher, ri rodegen haragata. Nerevon ox splunk oben, Akvishi kinta or shanach avion. A erable, a yeachracht, Agus a smacht. Er hor via, er hor na kohawale, egamachtla fauna mar haivsha. Gachainya in a gulla, se shroid valia, ach isha. Agasan shanach. Dat a creel a hahas, la ha haigla garda, dardiga kyanla dokas, e kasadir a laba, chinikshir, shalgarin a hiha, gashgiach an vohreen. Lubra na skohane, eg banu gach oit lena hlatin drichte. Fox. The watcher wasn't certain she had seen him when she stood at the window in the middle of the night, sleep eluding her. Under the gentle light of the moon and near the street light out on the road, something ran past her gate. It was only a sudden flash, but she was certain it was a fox. His tail, his intensity and his control in the search for food, in the search for sustenance, moving down the hill like a ghost. Everyone in the village asleep except for her and the fox. Her heart swelled with happiness, her face spread with a smile, her head lifted with hope as she turned towards her bed. She thought of him. Hunter of the night, warrior of the laneway, creeper of the shadows, blessing everywhere with his little wand. Some time ago I found God. He was standing beside me at a lunch counter in Kilkenny City. I'd probably have failed to notice him if it wasn't for the special attention and smiles he was getting from the waiting staff. We stood side by side, shuffling along with our food trays, and it was only when he turned to leave the counter that I caught sight of Brian Cody's unmistakable face. Without thinking, I leaned towards him and stuck out my hand. He hesitated for the briefest of seconds, balanced his food tray against his hip and extended his own hand in greeting. 
I mumbled some obsequious inanity as we awkwardly pressed flesh. Although I can't recall what I said, I do remember that handshake. It was warm and firm, yet slightly yielding, somewhat like a loaf of crusty bread fresh from the oven. Those are the hands he will spit into and rub together today, for all the world like a man prepared to split wood or drive a pickaxe into unyielding ground. Ironically, the cafe where we met was within a slither puck of Kilkenny Castle, and in his day Cody could have easily bent, lifted and struck the small ball high over its crenellated walls and into the grounds. It was there in 1366 that the English Lord Lieutenant summoned a Parliament to pass a number of statutes buttressing the Crown's position in Ireland. The Anglo-Irish were forbidden to use the Irish language. They could not sell horses or armour to the natives and they were expressly forbidden from playing hurling. When you think about it, this latter restrictive statute could perhaps be understood. Hurling has long had a martial history. It is known to have evolved as a form of battle training for Irish warriors. In the 8th century, under the Brehan laws, it was used as a mechanism to solve disputes between neighbouring communities. The laws went as far as setting out a scale of compensation for the families of anyone killed in these spirited sporting encounters. There is a saying that boasts the men of Ireland were hurling when the gods of Greece were young. This claim may be true. The annals record a mythological battle between the Tuatha-de-Danann and the Fir Bullog in 1272 BC. The encounter is claimed to have lasted four days and approximately 4,000 warriors were slaughtered in the encounter. In the days preceding the battle, a great hurling match was played. The finest warriors from the opposing sides lined up 27 on each team. Records are confused regarding the outcome of the hurling match, with some accounts stating that the Fir Bullog won and immediately killed all 27 of the opposing team. If this was the case, it proved a little rash, as the Thur were victorious in the ensuing battle. In pre-famine times during periods of political unrest, hurling games were often used as a smokescreen for political rallies. There are multiple reports of these events, many taking place in Kilkenny. In 1765, several thousand people assembled at a bog in Moon Coin for a Sunday game that had little to do with hurling, but much to do with injustice and the penal laws. In January 1831, so-called hurlers assembled at Callan. This time, tithe gathering was at the centre of the unrest. Once more, agitation overtook the beautiful game. It is recorded that for appearance sake, they once or twice threw the slither into the air and took a few harmless swings, but their hearts and motives were elsewhere. On these occasions, as can be understood, tempers were known to boil over. In that same town of Callan, local diarist Humphrey O'Sullivan recorded an entry for the 29th of June, 1827. Feast of St Peter and Paul, a holiday, hurling on the green. The sticks were being brandished like swords. Hurling is a warlike game. You could hear them striking from one end of the field to the other. 
he then goes on to write, I was knocked down by a young brat, but it was nothing to be ashamed of as I brought him down as well. Humphrey's observations from the 19th century are nothing new. When I was growing up in that town, I recall overhearing my Uncle Jimmy explaining how he had stopped bringing my Auntie Agnes to club hurling games. He claimed he was fed up finishing the sideline fights she was inclined to start. Many times we have heard the great GAA commentator Michal Omerhertig crooning how hurling is a game for the gods, played by gods. Whatever today's outcome, win or lose, I will feel my right hand tingle and know that on one perfectly ordinary lunchtime in Kilkenny, I shook the hand of God. On this morning's programme, we heard Kilkenny versus Limerick, the All-Ireland final that never happened by Jerry Moran. The most withering Kate Bush ever by Christina Hessian. Limerick's hurling heroes faced their toughest test was by Stephen O'Burns. Elizabeth Aldworth, the accidental lady Freemason by Emer O'Kelly. Shunach, our fox, a poem by Catherine Foley. And Shaking God's Hand by Joe Carney. The music was The Morning Dew by The Chieftains, live in Toronto. Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush. Dreams by The Cranberries, the acoustic version. The Queen of the Night aria from The Magic Flute by Mozart. And that was played by Burning River Brass. And finally, Claire de Lune by Debussy, performed by Daniel Barenboim. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. And you can find highlights from Sunday Miscellany at rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.